Welcome to Flip the Script, your go-to podcast about health disparities. My name is Max. My guest today is Dr. Utibe Essien. He's an assistant professor of general internal medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, let him tell us a little bit more about himself. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Max, for having me. Um, like you said, I'm an assistant professor of medicine here at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. Um, my research focus is in health disparities and access to cardiovascular medication treatment, especially with novel evidence-based treatments. Um, throwing it back, I did a general medicine fellowship at Harvard, um, got my MPH at the School of Public Health there, um, did my internal medicine residency in primary care at Mass General Hospital, um, throwing it all the way back, went to med school at Einstein, so I was in the Bronx, New York for four years, um, and yeah, found myself in University of Pittsburgh, where I've had a great, great year and a half so far. Got it. So after your primary care residency, you did this fellowship, which I've only recently heard about these general internal medicine fellowships. Um, like, what's the difference between just finishing residency and say going to be a primary care provider and doing a fellowship in general internal medicine? Like, can you help me with that? Yeah, no, that's a classic question. Something I'm always trying to educate because similarly, I had never even heard of that um, phrase until around my first or second year of residency. Um, so general internal medicine fellowships are usually research focused fellowships. Mm -hmm. um, they tend to be two to three years uh, and folks in those in that time pursue coursework and research methods and um, various develop various research skills. They conduct research, either primary or secondary research during those um, that time period. Um, they also do clinical work. So during my fellowship, I had a day of clinical week. Uh, mm -hmm. So other folks do patient clinical work. Um, some of Gen Med fellowships are focused on medical education. So there are uh, a few out there where rather than taking coursework in research, you're taking coursework in how to be a, a better educator, pursuing masters in education, for example. Yeah. Um, so for me, I decided to go down that path, kind of making the decision that I was going to be a, wanted to be a researcher a little bit. Um, towards the end of my third of my residency rather um, and felt like that was going to be the best way to to get me ready for that career. I see. So what motivated you to choose a research path as opposed to say being a medical educator or a primary care provider? I mean I guess you still are a primary care provider but I mean like you know going into private practice or like I don't know being the leader at the FQHC. Yeah no great question. I mean my so my dad is a private practice primary care doctor who I kind of saw as growing up, um, worked in his office as a high schooler and kind of saw that side of, of medicine rather. Um, once I got into medical school, I kind of got bitten by the academia bug for better or worse. Um, back in med school, I was, uh, um, I was one of the members in the organization of student representatives for the AAMC and really got into how we're training medical students, especially around social determinants. So mm -hmm. I was interested in that early on. Um, and then during residency, it was kind of trying to figure out what it is that I wanted to do. Though I was the primary care resident, I was still kind of flirting with pursuing cardiology as a career. Um, and our chair of medicine, who's a pretty awesome uh, woman, Katrina Armstrong, 
um, met with her a couple times during residency and she was like, well, the thing that drives me the most is just solving problems that piss me off. And I was mm-hmm. really uh, intrigued by that, that phrase and kind of going through my clinical day-to-day practice. I was really um, struggling with seeing our patients with diabetes who that was like their biggest problem, no matter who they were, no matter uh, how old or young um, they were. I felt like that was the most common thing that I was seeing in clinic. Mm-hmm. And was trying to figure out, okay, they are in clinic, they have a doctor, they have usually had some insurance, they had access to care, but still kind of struggling with disease management. What was it? What was there more that we could do? And so decided to try and solve it, try and come up with a research program to help, or project rather, to help um, fix that problem in our clinic and wrote my first um, very small pilot grant there that I was um, funded and we pursued this peer mentorship project to try and uh, get a better sense of what was going on with our um, patients with diabetes in our clinic. And so that's how I got, again, kind of bit with the, the research bug and have been kind of going on ever since. That was about my second year of residency. Mm-hmm. So while you've been sort of like pursuing this research career, and it sounds like, you, you, you know, you got going pretty early as a resident, getting grants already. Um, what did your support system look like, especially as a resident where you don't necessarily always have protected research time? Um, yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. I was like surprised by how much research was going on in my residency. There was like posters all over the conference room where we would have noon conference of various projects that my co-residents had led, um, which again, would just really shocked me given they were on call 28 hours, they were working nights, but all of a sudden I was seeing their names in these journals. So I was surprised. No, you did go to MGH. <laughs> it was the MGH way, exactly. Um, but I was surprised by it, but I think it really was the support, like you mentioned, um, and whether that was practical time to actually do research where we had a couple of, uh, research electives over the three years, um, or just more importantly, having that mentorship. And I mentioned Dr. Armstrong was really, um, supportive of my work early on, but was able to early on find a few other mentors as well who, uh, were interested in things that I was interested in and were willing to kind of take the time to sit and meet with me and discuss my ideas uh, and help me pursue my interest a little bit further. Even that early stage of residency where I was still super green in terms of my research knowledge and expertise. Mm-hmm. So this is one thing, or so this might not be clear to whoever is listening unless they know you or they kind of guess Um, based on your name, but you're a black man in medicine. um, And, you know, like it's been documented at Najam that it is sort of more difficult to retain and to even attract, um, you know, black medical trainees and other minorities that are underrepresented um, in research career um, career tracks. Uh, And I'm just curious what kind of, um, you know, efforts are out there to foster environments such that more Um, underrepresented in medicine trainees can, you know, enter the research paths. Yeah, that's like you said, that's just something that's been coming up um, time and time again, whether it's uh, discussing the pipeline more generally and who's actually um, going into medical school all the way through to who goes into academic medicine. Right. Um, And as we go through that pipeline, the quote unquote leaky pipeline, the numbers just continue to dwindle and 
think that mm-hmm. we can talk about the various reasons why that's the case. But um, so I think looking back, there aren't too many programs that are really focused on um, bringing folks into um, research careers more specifically. Uh, I think there's some that are coming around in terms of academic medicine. So there's a, a Bridging the Gap program um, that J.P. Sanchez leads, who's now at and Rutgers um, mm-hmm. University in New Jersey. And he was actually, um, he led this program while we were back in med school at Einstein and started and created it. And it's really been expanding in terms of really encouraging URM students to consider academic medicine as a career. Mm-hmm. Um, I know the, the NIH and um, other various foundations are kind of considering uh, underrepresented populations as, or, or leaders rather, as folks who should be considering research careers. The Robert Wood Johnson in particular has a um, career development award that's focused on um, URM faculty members, and that's just created legends who um, have become re- leaders in academic medicine. So I know there are various programs um, targeting folks who are already kind of in the path, but in mm-hmm. terms of early on in your in your career, there really um, aren't too many. I'm really proud to um, be a part of one of the uh, one of the programs here at Pitt in our career education and enhancement for healthcare diversity, super long um, um, phrase, but titled SEED, which actually brings in um, second and third year medical students who are interested in research, who are are from underrepresented in medicine backgrounds um, and helps kind of mentor them throughout their um, third year to through a research project and supports them through funding to present their research and really gives them some skills early on to at least start to entertain or consider a, a research career and an uh-huh. academic career. Um, and again, I'm not sure how ma- of too many other programs around the country that have such programs. I'd love to hear as all the folks who listen to our podcast can tell us more about what else is going on around the country. Right. So let's say I weren't like I'm currently doing research here, so you don't have to convince me too much, you know, about the benefits of like going into, I mean, maybe not benefits, but like the, the, the positives or the the net good of going into an academic career but if I weren't right what's in it for me like doing academia versus going into private practice and um, you know we hear things like oh you know you don't have to get tenure if you're in private practice like Mm -hmm. like little things like that so what yeah yeah, great question again. For me, it's really the opportunity to kind of change the narrative, change the public conversation, the national conversation about um, healthcare, whether it's um, thinking about disparities in cardiovascular medicine, like I am leading, or it's folks who are interested in maternal morbidity and mortality and um, the disparities in that field. I think the opportunities in academics really help you a kind of be a part of that national conversation in a, in a unique and thoughtful way. Um, mm-hmm. The opportunity to mentor um, young uh, trainees in the early stages to be able to inform and uh, educate people and let them see that careers in academia aren't kind of impossible to pursue, but they really are very possible and you can actually do a lot of good in such careers. I think that's another great um, benefit from academia. Um, as a researcher, I have a little bit more free time than other people do and who are more clinically focused to really sit down and think about my research problems, though. 
it feels like research can kind of bleed into all hours of the day, whether we're writing. I was about to say, right? <laughs> when do you stop? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just um, much like Hamilton, which who I obviously have to shout out. I'm writing nonstop. Um, <laughs> but I think really there's opportunity to kind of have that flexibility, whether it's um, working from home every now and then, which is harder to do on a, a more clinical focused schedule. Um, the kind of diastole that comes in between big projects and papers and grants uh, is really something that I think is a benefit. Um, I feel like those are some of the big, the big benefits and um, really important for us as um, people of color or underrepresented in medicine to be a part of that conversation. So far we are limited um, in that conversation in these spaces. And I think it's, um, it's really meaningful to kind of have us at the table um, making the decisions around what's actually getting researched and studied, what gets funded, and um, how we can change healthcare at a larger level. Yeah. So one of the, obviously the, the activation energy, uh, if I was to use my sort of like biochemistry uh, uh, language here, the activation energy is a lot higher, like the barriers to get into medical school are particularly steep, right? But then once people are in med school, uh, I guess, what would you say or what would you identify as barriers that especially um, URIM medical students and then residents may face when it comes to, um, you know, getting exposure and sort of like getting robust research opportunity and training? Yeah, I think they're, the barriers are still the same, right? I think it's the the folks who are doing research in undergrad and who have already published out of senior year of um, college who are the same folks who can go back to that mentor and kind of log on to their projects and write another paper. They're the same folks who have their CVs and resumes that are already kind of tightly knit so that when... Um, when researchers like myself are reviewing them right before that first summer of med school where a lot of big projects end up taking off, um, they kind of have an upper advantage as well. So I really do think it's kind of thinking about early on medical schools all over the country, um, preparing students for these opportunities, kind of providing them with the menu of offerings, um, showing them that research is A, is not just clinical or lab-based research. I met with a number of um, undergrad students just this past year at a PIT summer program for underrepresented um, students. And they were all shocked and surprised that I did research because they thought that I was in the lab pipetting or, or cutting up mice. And I was like, no, I haven't been in a lab since I was you guys' age. And I know. <laughs> so they really didn't realize or appreciate that there was a whole different side or world to both clinical research or health services. Uh, research. So I think really early on providing students with that knowledge. Um, mm -hmm. I think student people want to see people who look like them and work with people who are interested and excited about what they're excited about. And I do think that there's a new generation of people who are going into medicine who are social justice minded and um, who care about the issues that are kind of um, pervading around the country and may not necessarily um, want to get engaged in kind of the quote unquote traditional research um, mm -hmm. gets funded right now. And so may not necessarily be excited about pursuing a research career during those or research um, project during that first summer or in their fourth year or take a year off, like you talked about earlier to pursue research. Um, 
So I really do think it's kind of exposure. I'm, I'm glad we have like settings like social media where folks can kind of see the, our med students, um, the, the breadth of research out there and mm-hmm. kind of overload sometimes, but at least get to have the opportunity to know that there are different options. Um, and again, kind of see a number of different types of people who are doing that work. Mm-hmm. So a friend of mine and I were having this discussion recently about how research framing can have an impact on how on, on the type of just projects or even methods that people are interested in. Mm-hmm. So for example, as you mentioned, right, many um, trainees, or I mean, in general, like people in my generation, um, young black college kids or um, recent college graduates have been involved in one way or another in some kind of social justice efforts, um, especially anyone who graduated college like 2013 and, and forward, right, with the birth of the Black Lives Matter movement. And I wonder whether even the most basic of basic sciences could be framed in a way that would make research attractive to minority students, right? Like, so for, you know, I'm just thinking, thinking about, say, sickle cell disease, um, and I don't know, the, like the bone marrow transplant stuff or this, this like cell engineering, um, you name it, right? If, it, if you think if it were to be framed as a, hey, this is like a research opportunity that in the long term could have an impact in addressing, uh, you know, like issues related to what the Black Lives Matter agenda is about, like whether people would be more excited um, and would just also just, you know, just have more buy-in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. I feel like the, um, personally, I can frame any research project to be in a health equity kind of social justice minded project, whether it's the lowest or the highest level chemical genetic uh, project down to kind of the qualitative research with the community. Um, I think it all matters. I think it all makes a difference in how we um, provide care for vulnerable, underserved populations. Um, I think the framing thus far probably has been um, very focused on the science because in a way you kind of have to. I've always heard advice from um, folks who are advising me earlier on in my career is that kind of staying clear of the social justice issues or using your research at, as advocacy, but more just put the data out there and let the people decide what they want to decide. Um, I go back and forth about that in terms of what the best approach is. And I think for me, I, I can certainly allow the science to speak for itself, but um, in having conversations, whether like you and I are having today or um, off of the, the journal kind of traditional format, I really do like to emphasize the, the equity lens and the justice lens of, of some of our work. You know, if we continue to time after time show that um, racial or disparities exist or that differences in care exist by the color of your skin, maybe we need to move beyond kind of the traditional clinical and social factors and start to think about issues like racism, institutionalized, personalized, structural, et cetera. Um, And so I, I, again, I do think that there's an opportunity for better framing. I think people, researchers do have to be careful to not let their research blend too far away from the actual science and into advocacy, but we aren't all, we're not all just one unilateral person. We all have the opportunity to 
um, both pen that research paper and get it into a journal, as well as advocate for the patients who um, we are pursuing these careers and these projects for. And I think we can do both, though sometimes the line can be tricky. So this is interesting, right, that you mentioned the sort of like blur blurring of the line between uh, like say a personal or I, I guess like a advocacy agenda um, and what the quote unquote science um, or the data uh, out there might say. Um, and so this isn't a question, this is just my commentary on that, right? The 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 response to that is that in, no data is not neutral, right? Data data can be interpreted differently um, depending on what people's positionality is. And by that, I mean just kind of like the space that we occupy in society and the way we navigate through the world, right? The questions that we even ask are informed by, um, by the experiences that we've had. And, and I started thinking about that a lot more recently. So I'm auditing this um, like qualitative methods class and the instructor is an anthropologist, but he teaches in the School of Public Health and School of Medicine, and he makes it clear, right, like this, well, because he's an anthropologist, and like anthropology has this long history of racist science, mm-hmm. um, that you you have to acknowledge the space that you occupy and how you interact and, and, and your position vis-a-vis others, because it ultimately influences your research. And I, f- I feel like you're... Most basic of basic scientists, like you know, may may dec- may disagree, but I, I think even in clinical research, right? The, like, if, I'll use a good example. If I am looking at I don't know disparities in access to opioids, um, whether or not I decide to stratify my uh, you know like my data by race is a informed decision. If I'm like, well, I'm not going to look at race. I'm just going to publish the paper and not talk about race. Like that may be motivated by one thing or another, right? And maybe that I'm, I don't know, trying to hide something. You know what I mean? Like I feel like this idea that, oh, just answer whether your hypothesis was true or false and discuss it without editorializing hides the fact that even those hypotheses themselves are like influenced by our politics. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, that was just... A response to the to the apolitical science because I feel like I don't know science is not apolitical ever. <laughs> yeah, no, I feel that. I feel you on that. Um, so one thing that I was curious about is so you mentioned how you know attracting um, minority students to uh, and residents and just trainees in general to doing research right can contribute to shaping the discourse mm. um, related to. Um, health disparities, health inequities, right? Um, but we recently learned from the uh, uh, from the NIH director, to his surprise, um, that there are disparities in you know in like black scientists getting funded, especially. Um, and one of the factors is the fact that like black scientists are more likely to study, help or like at least to submit proposals related to health disparities and and like community health, right? Mm-hmm. So. When I read that, I was like, that's quite damning because that's what I want to do. <laughs> uh, and then uh, even within the scientists who all submit proposals related to health disparities and community health, the white scientists are more likely to be funded, right? Mm-hmm. Which speaks to the sort of like nature of 
all of these bodies, like funding bodies as racialized organizations. And I just wonder from your perspective, right, as a junior faculty, how do you respond to that? How do you, how do you wake up and keep going and like apply for that K and then for that next RO1, like knowing how bleak, you know, <laughs> how bleak things look? Yeah, yeah. No, that's uh, definitely a question been been struggling with and um, got to speak to a few folks about it earlier when the article first came out. And of course, the discouragement that came with it, right, where um, for someone like myself, similarly, who's um, working in the health equity, health disparity space, see those data and are like, well, guess there goes my my future career. Um, though others would argue and say, well, there's plenty of uh, amazing health equity, health disparities researchers of color who are um, out there thriving and doing their doing their thing. But we can definitely uh, improve numbers for sure. Um, so the discouragement for sure came with it. Um, I think thinking back to the structural um, reasons why that might be the case. Um, and I often, I always go back to um, the financial point of things and, <clears throat> excuse me, thinking about how does someone make this decision to go into a research career, knowing that your your um, financial well-being is based on whether or not you're able to bring grants into um, the institution and that if you don't bring grants, you basically don't have um, money to pay your salary and have to pursue a different career and how people um, take that risk, so to speak, differently. People who are have the opportunity, who don't have the loans, who maybe um, have kind of uh, family legacy or, or wealth and can kind of take that risk versus um, other populations. And of course, we know that the people who end up in medical school tend to have a higher income than, than those who don't. Um, so that's definitely another thing that I've thought about, both the structural differences from that, that standpoint, but as well as kind of thinking about mentorship and who gets mentored, who kind of gets encouraged, no matter how, how tough the, the question might be or how tough the, um, the papers might be going versus who kind of says, well, you know, maybe this isn't the right career for you. Have you considered X or Y or Z? Um, so for me, I, I've been really fortunate to have a great mentor system here um, at Pittsburgh. So shout out to all of those who are still looking for a job um, and come on out to the pit. Um, but I, oh, I, I <laughs> a little shameless plug. Um, but I really do think having that that team is is crucial and um, really having the support both from your 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 chief, your chair, um, your direct mentors who are with you on a day to day basis. Um, just makes such a difference. And then of course, I'm fortunate to know the kind of position of privilege that I, I come from having that opportunity, um, though that was not necessarily always the case. Um, so that do certainly does make a difference. It's the mentors who kind of when I see the email that my paper didn't get accepted, continue to encourage me that I will know, we'll choose, search for the next journal, we'll, we'll look for the next conference, et cetera, rather than kind of radio silence or, well, you're on your own, you'll, you'll figure this out. Um, and I certainly haven't had that in my early career and um, I'm super fortunate. I think that's gonna make a difference and hopefully I can kind of feed that back to other future researchers whether it's those who are here locally or on a more national basis um, to really offer that encouragement because I do think that that makes makes all the difference for sure. Mm -hmm. um, so that is given from your uh, perspective as a faculty person, right? And But I, I feel like as a trainee, if I'm, I'm looking at that, I'm like, well, I could 
go into academia and like fight, you know, tooth and nail um, and, and hope that, sure, my K is going to get awarded, my R1 is going to get awarded, right? So uh, you even look at data that showed, you know, disparities in promotion rates, right? And currency for promotion rate in academia is research funding, right? right. And, and then we learned that there also are disparities in, uh, in research funding. So how, um, in a, you know, being in a space where support exists, mm-hmm. how is that effect in disparities uh, in research funding sort of being mitigated if you've seen it at all, right? Does anyone take that into consideration when they're looking, when, you know, when they're thinking about, um, you know, promotion and, and issues related to attrition rates? Mm-hmm. I mean, I saw that Black faculty in academic medical centers get promoted from assistant to associate and then from associate to assistant at half the rate of white faculty and similarly for Hispanic um, compared to white faculty. Mm-hmm. No, that's, I think that that's real and that's anyone should be thinking about that, right? Like we stressed over what MCAT score was going to get us into what medical school. And then once you get into that stage, what board score is going to get you into what specialty. So I imagine that residents or early trainees are thinking, okay, what do I need to really accomplish to kind of progress through academic life and faculty. Um, mm-hmm. I think that that's real and that's something that should be addressed um, on a just like a very practical basis at our institution. We've had these hard conversations with our chair and said, hey, these are what the data show, you know, what what is happening here, what is being done um, in our institution to address this. We have a new vice chair of um, diversity in our de- department of medicine who part of her job is to help advanced faculty members and whether that's Mm -hmm. making sure that people who are supposed to go up for um, that next level of promotion, whether it's assistant to associate, associate to professor or going up and in a timely fashion, um, or it's making sure that people aren't kind of bogged down with the the quote unquote minority tax or the, the, um, the tasks that are being asked of early career faculty to do that aren't necessarily going to be in line for promotion. So really prioritizing that, it's been cool to see that new position be built and see that advance in our, in our department, again, very practically. Um, on a national basis, I do think that there are opportunities to do more. And though we kind of talk about this paper and this, the surprise that, that came from it, I do think that it's great to, that the conversation is being had, whether it's with um, recent letter and reply to that article or it's just on the press that can attention that came around the article i'm glad to see that much like the um, gender equity conversation in academic medicine that the um, promotion of urm faculty is also um, really rising to the top of the conversation and um, i believe that leaders are listening whether it's chairs or chiefs of departments and not kind of just poo-pooing it or sweeping it under the rug but um, really having um, thoughtful hard conversations with their faculty and saying hey you know what can we what can be done a with those who are already here but also with the pipeline of future um, students and trainees who are looking in and saying like is that really where I want to get myself into or should I um, pursue a different career option right uh, you mentioned something that was interesting right there the fact that there are a bunch of tasks that are asked of um, junior faculty that don't necessarily go into your file for tenure right so I mean, uh, I don't know, serving on XYZ committee and worse yet, if you happen to be black, everybody is going to try to pull you into the new, um, I don't know, yet another 
kind of diversity task force uh, and you've probably ex sort of like seen or experienced that since you were in medical school, how do you balance, right, the, um, what feels like a sense of duty to support, you know, junior minority trainees um, and sort of like contribute to service um, to the institution while also knowing that, hey, this stuff is not going to my tenure file and I need to like keep my head down and do my research. How do you balance that? Yeah, great question. Again, I think, A, having that supportive chief, I've like, this is a conversation we I literally had with my chief when I was applying for the job of like, yes, I see your passion for um, diversities from when you were a medical student all the way through to your work as a fellow. Um, but once you get here, like your priority is going to be <clears throat> your advancement in academia and it's going to be the papers and the grants and we're going to ask you to help in terms of interviewing um, students and faculty members, but that's not going to be the um, the priority of your job and basically mine, you can put my name on the line to say, no, I've been asked to kind of take these first few years to focus on my research. And just having her say that really made it a, a pretty easy decision to um, come join the faculty here. I don't know how many chiefs or chairs are kind of having those like real conversations with their faculty members about that. Um, and it just allows you to kind of have the opportunity to focus on what you want to focus on. Like as an African-American man um, who benefited from having other um, people of color kind of guide me and advise me and mentor me, that's what I want to do. I'm, I'm not trying to shy away from it. But I also appreciate that these grants are going to be what advances my career and these papers. Right. Um, and the way that I can help advance other people's careers is by stick staying in this game. Right. Um, you can't. You just... <laughs> <laughs> so it's a, it's definitely a hustle. I love how Kimberly Manning framed it. Like it's not really a ta minority tax. Like this is we're doing what I love. And again, appreciate that privilege of being able to say that. Um, but I think when it comes from the top, when they also, when your leaders and um, um, when your bosses appreciate that this is something that exists, they haven't, they've literally written about the minority tax and it's not some phrase that they're hearing about on um, from their young black um, faculty members, that definitely makes a difference. And hopefully by now, this is out there. People know it. It's not something that is kind of beyond being unheard of. Mm -hmm. Of course, that um, the positions of leadership, like having diversity, having equity at the forefront of hospital um, divisions and leadership is important. And we need us in those positions, but not being dragged into that while still being expected to practice 100% clinically, while still being expected to bring in our full salary on grants. Um, that's just not realistic. So um, it's going to be great to continue to see leadership hopefully appreciate that. Solid. Um, that sounds like you've been really fortunate. Uh, I have one more question related to going from research to sort of um, tangible improvement mm. um, for you know the, basically the thing that that are, the things that are driving us into academia, which is we want to uh, study things that are not being done right, and how can we um, turn things around uh, and make them better. So, you know, once you've published, for example, you published that very nice paper about disparities in initiation of um, direct oral anticoagulants. Uh, how do you sort of like take things from there to changing practice, right? Because uh, I feel like that's um, not necessarily the quote unquote academic currency, but 
that will be fulfillment for me as a researcher. It's like seeing that, oh, wow, now people are getting the DOACs and they're not like, you know, putting all the black people on Warfarin when they, they could be on, I don't know, Zorelto or maybe it's Zorelto evidence-based. I don't know. <laughs> it's, all, it's all DOACs all day. That'll be okay. for another podcast. Yes. <clears throat> yeah, no, that is the game changer. I literally wrote this morning as I'm writing yet another grant that my long-term oh, career goal is to develop strategies that uh, inform practice and policy because I don't want these papers to kind of just be sitting on um, on a shelf in a journal somewhere or now right. on a tweet or a thread. Um, I do want it to be able to help inform practice and policy. And I think that the more evidence is out there and showing that there is disparate care, um, no matter how you look at it, by income, by sex, by um, race, et cetera, um, I'm hoping that the practice continues to change. Um, uh-huh. Again, I'm grateful to be a part of a, a integrated health system where actually the data really do go to the people who are listening and the people who are making decisions. And I get uh-huh. to work with the um, Office of Pharmacy um, nationally here at the VA and really um, show them our findings and say, hey, like, this is what we found. How can we actually next um, kind of change the game in the next um, iteration of these findings? Um, and so that's actually been cool. Of course, not everybody has that such an opportunity, but I think whether it's even doing pilot studies in your um, local division and your department, whether it's showing the data that we showed in our um, Journal of General Internal Medicine paper that residents, um, that the care that residents provide is different from the care that attendings provide. And again, stirring up that conversation, having um, the next group of residents actually do a study where they um, show data by for each resident based on their outcomes. Like that was basically spun off of the study that we did. So, oh, very nice. Yeah, so it's been awesome to see again. And it starts with the question. Um, it starts with being able to ask questions that really think <laughs> handle things that piss you off or things that you want to change. Um, mm-hmm. And when you get to see an answer that can actually change practice or change um, policy, and I think that's obviously, like you said, why many of us are in this field, not just to write papers to fill up our, our PubMed, PubMed pages. Right. Um, ultimately, right, it's, uh, at least for me, right. Um, well, thank you so much. Uh, I feel like I learned quite a bit um, from talking to you, and, and I feel slightly more hopeful uh, about <laughs> about academia from talking to you. Uh, I hope you have that effect on every training you get to talk to. Awesome. I appreciate the time, Max. This is fun. Look forward to catching up again soon. My right, pleasure is mine.